Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays with SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in security studies are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Tyler Jost, a professor of political science at Brown University. Professor Jost's Wednesday seminar lecture looks at the question, when does bureaucracy make states prone to miscalculate in international crises? He argues that two dimensions of these institutions, the capacity for information search and interbureaucratic information sharing, help explain why some states are more prone to miscalculate than others. Jost is an assistant professor at Brown University, where much of his current work examines national security decision-making. He completed his undergraduate studies at West Point and served as a military officer with assignments to Afghanistan, the U.S. Cyber Command, and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, today I'm going to be presenting research that comes from my first book project that uh, Taylor mentioned, which looks at how institutional relationships between leaders and the bureaucracy shape the quality of leader decisions in international crises. And in order to motivate the talk, I'd like to open with an example that you might say generated the study of bureaucratic politics in at least American IR, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So as all of us know, the Cuban Missile Crisis represented the peak of geopolitical tensions uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. By deploying nuclear-capable missiles to Cuba, Moscow generated an international crisis in which decision-makers came close to devastating nuclear annihilation. And looking back on it, Soviet leaders were incredibly critical of what they had uh, achieved by assuming risks in the crisis. Uh, we almost slipped into nuclear war, Leonid Brezhnev later recalled, and what effort did it cost ourselves to pull ourselves out? Yet we now know that in the summer of 1962, before all this went down, uh, Brezhnev's predecessor, Nikita Khrushchev, was surprisingly optimistic about the plan's prospects for success. Khrushchev's triggered the Cuban Missile Crisis not because he felt that there were no other good options, but because he thought that the objectives he wanted to achieve would be achieved. In other words, Khrushchev miscalculated. As I already alluded to, uh, those of us who have read Graham Allison's Essence of Decision no doubt think about how the ways that standard operating procedures may have shaped Soviet miscalculation. And indeed, if we were to survey the work of our historian colleagues, we would find a common explanation for why states make such mistakes stems from quote unquote bureaucracy. Historians have argued that bureaucracy is critical to understanding the miscalculations that states have made, ranging from the 1914 July crisis, the US escalation in Vietnam, and the Bay of pigs. The puzzle that I want to explore with you today, however, is that we know that bureaucracy is common to essentially all modern states in some form or fashion, but it doesn't always lead them to miscalculate, and certainly doesn't lead them to miscalculate at such high costs. So the question I want to explore is why is bureaucracy in some states more prone to miscalculation than in others? And to preview my argument, I'm going to make two core claims. The first is that I'm going to try to introduce this concept 
what I term a national security institution that I will argue helps us systematically differentiate states, by one, uh, states from one another based upon their bureaucratic structure. So in the same way that we think about states as being different based upon whether or not the relationship between state and society is democratic or autocratic, we can think about national security institution and the variation therein as differentiating states on that bureaucratic dimension. The second claim will be that the variation in the design of these institutions shapes the risk of miscalculation in international crisis. Specifically, I'm gonna argue that states are prone to initiate crises in which they fail to achieve the objectives that they want when leaders sit atop pathological institutions akin to what Khrushchev possessed prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis, akin to what the Kaiser possessed prior to World War I, and akin to what both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson possessed prior to the Bay of Pigs and Vietnam War, respectively. The common thread there is gonna be the design of these institutions. So in the remainder of the talk, I'm gonna briefly review the existing literature on bureaucracy and miscalculation. And given that this is SSP uh, and that Maria is in the audience, I'm then gonna spend the majority of my time today talking or walking through this institutional theory of miscalculation. In the process of illustrating this theory, I'm gonna draw upon two case studies that are a part of the book project. The first on the 2001 EP3 crisis between the United States and China, and the second, the 1962 Sino-Indian War. I'm then gonna very briefly review the broad uh, empirical strategy in the book. They'll spend the last part of the talk focusing on the statistical analysis, which I'm currently finalizing to test the external validity of the argument. So let's begin with like, what does the existing literature have to say about bureaucracy and miscalculation? And so I want to try to convince you that there are two common assumptions that the existing literature makes. The first is that you might say that bureaucracy is like everyone's favorite, punch, everyone's favorite punching bag. And this is like in common life and in academia. So in everyday language, the term is associated with red tape and inefficiency. And we often like, if we wanna blame why paperwork is moving slowly or why government doesn't seem to like get things done the way that we want them to do, uh, we go to the gym, we pull out our gloves and we start blaming quote unquote, the bureaucracy. This conventional wisdom is actually quite prevalent in the existing literature in IR too. The charges against bureaucrats are many, so they have parochial interests, those interests tend to be hawkish, they tend to log roll to get what they want, they're prone to groupthink, they solve problems by rote, and so on. Indeed, if there is a common theme from the first wave of scholarship on bureaucracy that emerged in the 1970s and 1980s, it was that bureaucracy degrades judgment. A second assumption, very much connected to the first, is that institutional design offers very few remedies to help fix the fundamentally flawed nature of bureaucracy. So Deborah Larson, for example, in surveying the literature in the early 2000s, argued that bureaucratic structure is essentially orthogonal to leader judgment. Leaders choose what works for them, but the type of structure that they choose has no bearing on whether or not a state is likely to miscalculate. Henry Kissinger, in all his wisdom, offered much the same conclusion in his memoirs. And finally, in a path-breaking work uh, that came out in the early 2000s by Amy Ziegart, she argued, again in this tradition, that bureaucracy was flawed by design, drawing upon some of the new institutionalism that folks like Terry Moe at Stanford had argued. Uh, the idea is essentially there is no permanent fix for these types of things. The last assumption, which is somewhat in tension with the first two, but it's still there if you look hard, is that bureaucracy is just too ideographic, too particular to make stable and systematic comparisons across time and space. 
So you might say when the first wave of scholarship on bureaucratic politics ended, the field was probably where we are in our understanding of leaders uh, in, say, the field in the 2000s, before the behavioral revolution really started uh, to think systematically about individual level dis uh, distinctions in a more nomothetic manner. So as, as much as the leaders' literature helped to clarify and advance our understanding of the world's most consequential folks when it comes to national security decision making, they also offered some rather stylized assumptions uh, uh, along the way. So if you look at this wave of scholarship, it's peppered with all of these juicy quotes, positing that while bureaucracies might be important, it's really that they are trumped, and that pun uh, is very much intended, but they are trumped by the importance of leaders, right? Uh, so similarly, when we look at the literature on advisory systems, uh, what we usually find is that advisory systems, the structure of bureaucracy, follows almost in lockstep from the personality of leaders. Finally, I want to emphasize that I do not believe that there has been no work looking at things that we might describe as bureaucracy. Um, yet these, what I would term organization-centric literatures, leave us unsatisfied in several respects. For one, the bulk of this literature is concerned with understanding the preferences of military organizations. And as important as these folks might be, they're actually a really very narrow slice of what constitutes a modern national security bureaucracy. Uh, it, Importantly, the scholarship doesn't really have a ton to say about the broader set of civilians that are encompassed in the term civil in civil-military relations. What are we to make of the differences between, say, political leaders on the one hand and civilian defense ministers, civilian foreign ministers, and civilian intelligence organizations on the other? The present scholarship just doesn't have clear answers to this question. Just as important, oh, yeah, so the existing scholarship on bureaucracy and IRA is quite disconnected, I would argue, from the voluminous and important set of uh, work on institutions elsewhere in the social sciences. Uh, it would be a heinous offense, I think, to claim that political science broadly has failed to examine things like bureaucracy and state capacity. It's less that there isn't sound thinking out there, uh, but rather that the ideas that have been developed in comparative and American politics haven't been integrated into the work in IR in full. And so it's the ambition of this project to do just that. So with that out of the way, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we might build a theory that connects variation in bureaucracy uh, and how it's configured to the quality of choices that states and specifically leaders make in international crisis. So in order to do so, I'm going to sort of clarify the set of assumptions that I'm working with. Some of these are coming from the existing literature. Some of them are just sort of deductive. I'm happy to be pushed on all of them in the Q&A. Um, but uh, so this is a sort of setup. So the first thing that I'm going to assume is that uh, uh, is about sort of the nature of why crises happen in the first place. Why does something like the Cuban Missile Crisis even enter into our world? I assume that crises like this don't just happen. Right? They are the result of choices that leaders make. Um, so presidents, prime ministers, and dictators have to make a choice in order for a crisis to occur. Second, I assume that leaders select into these crises in a purposeful manner. That is, they choose to select them because they believe that the crisis will advance their objectives in some form or fashion. And third, I assume uh, that leaders lack information about how the crisis is going to turn out. In other words, at the time that they select in, leaders don't know if the outcome is going to be good or bad, allow them to achieve their objectives, or not. So it's this absence of information at the time that leaders select into crisis that creates the potential for what I'm going to term miscalculation. So as a term of art, miscalculation can mean a lot of different things. So I want to be very specific of what I mean here. 
I'm using this term to refer to situations in which leaders choose to initiate a crisis based upon an inaccurate proposition about the state of the world. So, and this is not necessarily true, I don't want to pro provoke a debate about this, but for purposes of illustration, if Vladimir Putin chose to invade Ukraine because he believed that he was stronger than he turned out to be, that would meet my definition of a miscalculation. As Graham Allison would remind us, however, leaders are not the only person in the decision-making room. So all of those photos of John F. Kennedy sitting alone in the Oval Office during the Cuban Missile Crisis are kind of a red herring. Um, we know that Kennedy's choices were informed by the information and deliberations that his advisors provided to him during, during those fateful 13 days. So why does the fact that there are multiple people potentially in the room, or at least in the state system, why does that matter for the study of miscalculation? Well, two reasons. First, the introduction of more players into the state system could mean that information that one bureaucratic actor possesses might fail to reach the leader. So a leader could miscalculate because information that bureaucrats possess below his or her level simply doesn't make its way up. The second reason might be uh, that bureaucrats provide information that is of low quality. And here I mean that it is inaccurate. Bureaucrats could lie. They could be lazy. They could fail to look for information. And putting this together, what this means, essentially, that leaders could miscalculate along two very specific pathways, not because there's private information in the international system, not because the international system is difficult to predict, but for two specific reasons that the bureaucracy and leader interactions reduce uh, uh, the leader's information uh, uh, to an incomplete sample or an inaccurate sample. So specifying these pathways is helpful because it naturally draws our attention to two key questions that are going to motivate the remainder of the talk. First, what is it, uh, when is it costly for leaders to search for information inside the state system? And second, what are the incentives and constraints for bureaucrats to provide quality information to the leader? So my core theoretical intervention in this book project is to argue that states systematically differ along these two dimensions that uh, the two questions imply. So for ease of reference, I'm going to label these differences national security institutions, which I talked about at the very beginning. Uh, which I label as the rules and procedures that define roles, constraints, and expectations of bureaucracies that advise leaders on national security policy. This is taken from the comparative literature on institutions, but modified and applied here. And as I said, those two questions that I introduced on the previous slide lead us to think about two dimensions of institutional variation. The first being the capacity of the leader to search for information, and the capacity for bureaucracies to share information with one another. So I'm going to argue that states can be binned into one of four ideal types based upon where they fall along these two dimensions. So in the remainder of the discussion on the theory, I'm going to first discuss what each dimension means and then talk about the possible combinations in three of the cells. And I'll talk about why I sort of exclude the fourth cell in a second. So the first dimension, information search capacity, can be thought about as the conditions by which a more complete set of information is likely to reach the leader. So think about two extremes. On the one hand, think about inclusive structures that incorporate the bureaucracy into the leader's decision-making process. And on the other hand, think about insular structures that shut the bureaucracy out of those same processes. Now, why would this matter? Well, two reasons. The first reason is relatively straightforward and almost uninteresting. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's the less interesting of the two. 
Inclusiveness reduces transaction costs to get complete information from the bureaucracy to the leader. So things like a committee, a staff, routinized procedures help reduce the risk that information goes missing. Right? Think about Eisenhower and the way that he sort of chided his staff when they forgot where the uh, information that was supposed to get, him, get to him went. The second reason, perhaps a little bit more interesting, is strategic in nature. Right? So inclusiveness fosters bureaucratic motivation, not just ability, but motivation to contribute. Bureaucrats who know that their advice will be listened to are incentivized to look for information because they know that it can impact policy. In contrast, bureaucrats who are shut out of the decision process lack these incentives, and because they know that they are not going to be listened to, have little uh, reason to look for information. This is drawing upon some of the literature on bureaucratic committees inside of American politics. So a second dimension, uh, what I term bureaucratic access to information, can be thought of as shaping incentives and constraints for bureaucrats to provide quality information to the leader. It is not enough for us to know that the leader receives a lot of information, right? So the leader could just be flooded, inundated with tons and tons of information. What we want is quality information that narrows down what the most important inferences are to reach the leader. Again here, think about two extremes. So at one end, consider a situation in which all bureaucrats know everything about what other bureaucrats know. Uh, there is no siloing whatsoever. And at the other end, consider a situation in which bureaucrats only know what is going on inside their silo. Right? I posit two reasons why this horizontal information flow matters to the quality of information that leaders receive. So first, open systems enable bureaucrats to identify what organizational theorists term interdependent information. Sort of think about like 9-11 and some of the failures that happened there, um, but in a more like stylized way, Imagine two bureaucrats, each with a piece of information, let's say one military signal and one diplomatic signal, and both are trying to figure out whether or not it's worthwhile to report that information up to the leader. Interdependent information refers to a very specific circumstance in which the value of each bit of information changes based upon whether both pieces of information are known. And quite obviously, horizontal information flow, or open access to information, helps bureaucrats in accurately assessing the value of their information because they can see what the other silo is seeing and more accurately determine whether or not the information needs to be reported up. The second reason is that open systems allow bureaucrats to police one another's information. So this is important because different bureaucracies tend to have different perspectives and biases in their understanding of the world. One important example, as would be familiar to everyone in this room, is that of military or defense bureaucracies. As the research of many of the folks in this room can attest to, these bureaucracies tend to skew hawkish, meaning that they see strategies that employ violence as optimal even if they have a low probability of advancing the state's goals. And it's reasonable to suppose that that could affect the accuracy of information that they provide to the leader. So it's here that open access and deliberation between the two sides can be useful, right? So if the system includes not just a hawkish bureaucratic constituency, but also a less hawkish constituency, say from diplomats, including these more diverse set of bureaucratic representatives, not only widens the aperture of advice that the leader receives, but also shapes the strategic interaction between the defense and diplomatic bureaucracies themselves. Consider a situation in which one bureaucracy makes a recommendation to the leader, but other bureaucrats possess information that militate against that recommendation. In a closed system, bureaucrats struggle to argue with one another because they do not know what the other side is saying, what the other side is saying to the leader. Or more pithily, you can't argue with the wall of a bureaucratic silo. 
So we now have these two institutional dimensions uh, and um, uh, with, with you know, two values that they can take on in the stylized framework. And that means that we're in the favorite part of political science land, which is the, you know, the land of the two by two. Uh, today, I'm going to be focusing on three of these cells, uh, which correspond to three combinations that, can, that, can, um, that states can take on integrated, siloed, and fragmented. Um, the reason I'm going to focus on them today is because it turns out empirically that they are the most commonly observed. Um, and there's also a kind of uh, internal inconsistency with dictatorial institutions, the upper, upper right hand uh, um, cell, which I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. So the first combination, um, oh, this is another visualization if, it, if it's helpful, but OK. So the first combination, uh, what I term integrated institutions, features two components, which should be obvious based upon the discussion that we've just had. Uh, but the key here is that they feed upon one another. There's an interactive uh, dimension, uh, or rather there's an interactive element to the two dimensions in combination. So bureaucrats have the capability and incentive to provide quality information, but inclusivity is critical to it reaching the leader, right? So just because you have good information doesn't mean it can reach the leader. And conversely, just because information can reach the leader doesn't mean it's of high quality. So states can deviate from these integrated institutions in one of two ways, siloing and fragmented. Uh, and I'm going to go through each in turn. So the first way they can deviate is by restricting bureaucratic access to information, but still including bureaucrats in the leader's decision making, what I call the siloed institution. Siloed institutions create an obvious problem based upon what we talked about. This is A, they can't identify interdependent information, and B, bureaucrats aren't policing one another. So to illustrate this, I'd like to use the example of the 2001 EP3 crisis between the United States and China. So based upon interviews that I did with Chinese interlocutors, one of the things I found that this was a highly siloed system at the time in which the crisis occurred. While there was no systematic impediment to bureaucracies getting information up to the leader per se, there were systematic impediments to there being horizontal information between, say, defense and diplomatic officials. This was in large part structural in nature. So the Central Military Commission uh, uh, exerts tremendous authority over decision-making in defense affairs and includes no civilian representatives other than the supreme political leader. The Foreign Affairs Leading Small Group, on the other hand, exerts tremendous influence over diplomatic affairs, but at the time didn't include the senior most military brass. And in the interviews I did, what was consistently told was that one of the problems that this generated was that the foreign ministry had the first say in diplomatic affairs and was overly, overly deferential in defense affairs. Uh, and conversely, the People's Liberation Army had the first say in defense affairs, but largely was kept out of planning of the way in which military decisions might impact diplomatic ones. So this got China, I argue, into a bit of trouble uh, when a US reconnaissance plane, or EP-3, collided with a Chinese fighter jet off the coast of Hainan Island on April 1st, 2001. So the crux of the problem, I argue, was that the initial reports that the PLA provided to the Chinese leader, Jiang Zemin, were wildly inaccurate. As we now know, the accident occurred because of a kind of quote unquote hot dog pilot, Chinese pilot that is, who got too close to the EP3 and there was an accident, the two bumped into one another, causing the Chinese pilot to crash and the US plane to make an emergency landing. The information that Jiang received, however, told him that the United States was to blame. The United States had made a sudden movement, and that is what had caused the collision. And internal to the Politburo, we have, for example, Li Peng's diary claiming that the senior leadership had, quote unquote, iron proof of the American culpability. 
So Chinese interlocutors report that the problem with the information that Zhang received was not that was was rather that it was prop, not properly vetted outside of defense channels, and importantly by analysts who did not have a parochial interest in absolving themselves of responsibility for the incident. The problem was not that Zhang lacked civilian control over the military per se. The problem was that his institutions did not allow other civilian bureaucrats to help him monitor and police the military, uh, what the military was telling him. So Zhang's inaccurate understanding of the responsibility of the incident led him to make a series of quite strident demands upon the United States. You might, because most folks in this room have lived through this, uh, uh, you might remember. Uh, so China demanded that the United States ends its reconnaissance program, that it owns up and accepts responsibility for the incident, and apologizes for what it's done. Now, ex ante, this actually isn't a completely ludicrous position for Zhang to take. Zhang had, just two years prior, successfully extracted an apology from the United States and even financial reimbursement, eventually, for a similar confrontation in which the United States, though by accident, bore responsibility for striking the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Yet despite the, uh, uh, the information that Zhang received in 2001, China's bargaining position as a result of the facts on the ground was systematically worse in 2001 than it was in 1999. And as a result, the United States simply refused to accept any of Zhang's demands. The US reconnaissance flights resumed shortly after the collision. The United States refused to accept responsibility. And while the translation questions get a little ticky tacky, uh, and I'm happy to talk about those in the Q&A, I argue at least that the United States did not apologize for the collision, at least not in the way, not in the way that the United, pardon me, not in the way that Beijing had hoped for. More formally, we now have a first specific hypothesis, namely that relative to integrated institutions and that relative portion is important. Siloed institutions will be more likely to miscalculate. Right? Okay. So coming back to the second institutional deviation, this fragmented institutions. Uh, this combination in which there is an insulated structure, but here the quality of bureaucratic information, whether or not there's horizontal information flow, sort of matters less, right? Because none of it's going to make its way up to the leader. But it's helpful to think through the types of bureaucratic exclusions which might pose problems to the quality of a leader's decisions. I've been saying thus far that you know, like you have to include bureaucracy. Well, but what do I mean by that? What specific bureaucracies would be important for a leader to interact with? Obviously, there are lots that one might consider, so the question comes down to which ones are most important in the context of an international crisis. This is also important from a research design perspective, right? because if we want to identify which uh, state is in which category, we have to know which bureaucracies to look for. So to answer this question, I take you know, what's a termed a functionalist approach, and I'm happy to talk more about what another approach might look like, but that is, I think, deductively about the types of information that leaders would need in order to confront any international security crisis. And then, thinks about, uh, then I think about the type of bureaucrats that would be likely to have such information. So let me walk you through what I did, or my thinking. So the first category of information pertains to the probable outcome and costs that would be associated if bargaining, peaceful bargaining between the two sides fail and it goes to the battlefield, right? So I assume that this type of information tends to cluster in defense bureaucracies, right? Defense bureaucracies tend to do the defense planning. The second category of information pertains to the probable outcome and response of adversaries in the crisis. Will the adversary stand firm? How much in the way of costs is the other society willing to pay? How might adversaries react to coercive measures? and so on. And I assume this type of information doesn't cluster in defense bureaucracies, but rather in diplomatic ones who have special ex expertise in thinking about the way in which other societies operate, other domestic political systems operate, and the way other leaders think about the world. 
Altogether then, this means that leaders sitting atop these fragmented institutions might err either because they lack access to critical defense information or because they act, lack access to critical diplomatic information, this critical uh, um, uh, information about the other side's resolve and political circumstances, so on and so forth. So it's worth pausing here, I think, to think about how this contrasts with existing scholarship on bureaucracy. Namely, while existing scholarship does not use these terms, it does imply that there might actually be considerable benefits to fragmented institutions because it insulates leaders from those parochial advisors who are up to no good. Right? Bureaucracy cannot cause states to miscalculate through parochial advice, this reasoning, uh, line of reasoning posits, if they are shut out of decision-making circles. In contrast, my theory is positing that there are systematic benefits to integrating these bureaucrats into decision-making circles conditional on certain types of institutional arrangements that help ensure the inability of those bureaucrats uh, to offer up low-quality information. So one of the helpful examples to illustrate what I mean by a fragmented institution comes from the tenure of Nehru in India in the 1950s. The fragmented institutions that Nehru adopts uh, after independence in 1947 put the defense ministry, not the diplomatic in uh, an institutionally disadvantaged position. Uh, conventional wisdom might lead us to believe that this might actually have been a good thing, right? If it's Graham Allison, we would say, well, Nehru freed himself from bureaucratic advice. Uh, and if it's a traditional civil military uh, relations model, uh, Nehru firmly subordinated his hawkish bureaucracy uh, to civilian control. Yet I argue that Nehru plays a, pays a pretty heavy price for these fragmented institutions. Beginning in the late 1950s, Nehru faces a problem in how to handle India's territorial disputes with China. And this is particularly a problem because China has improved its ability to deploy forces to border regions to, uh, and allow it to respond to uh, the situation with military force more quickly and effectively. So if we're Nero, on the one hand, we could do one of two things. There's a new balance of power, so we might seek a negotiated settlement, uh, or at least accept the status quo, um, such that uh, uh, we're not going to push our demands on China too far. On the other hand, Nero could uh, make a gambit, similar to Khrushchev, and attempt to change the local balance of power by pushing Indian positions forward along the border, and then coming back to the negotiating table, asking uh, China to accept their offer. Nero, unfortunately, chooses the latter option, which is disastrous for India. Those of you who know the 62 war, it's just an absolute calamity for, uh, for Delhi. The, foreign pol uh, the forward policy triggers a war with China in 1962, and by the end of that war, India lost its forward positions that it had attempted to establish. It suffered thousands of casualties, and in the end, China doesn't budge in its bargaining offers. Right? So much like Khrushchev prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis, Nehru uh, doesn't choose the forward policy because he feels he has no other options. Rather, he does so because he feels that this strategy will work. Nehru possesses a strong prior belief in the efficacy of diplomacy uh, and its ability to solve intractable problems. And the advice he receives from the Ministry of Exter uh, External Affairs, their version of a diplomatic ministry, sort of confirms these priors. He listens to that uh, and accepts that his bargaining position is especially strong based upon international law and precedent rather than the local balance of power. What both Nehru and his diplomatic advisors lack, however, is an understanding of the weakness of India's material power. Military officers who lacked access to Nehru and the fear, feared speaking truth to power did not offer advice on military grounds that Nehru desperately needed. So to help visualize what's going on here, consider this graphic. So let's say that state A is China and state B is India. So China releases a signal into the international system 
uh, in this case, a military mobilization. And it, we need not necessarily think about this as an interstate signaling story. It's just uh, a one way of visualizing it. Uh, the critical insight here is that it's not private information or the structure of the international system, the unpredictability, uncertainty associated with it, but rather the institutional design on India's end that causes that signal, that bit of information, to fail to make its way up from the bureaucracy to the leader. We can see this in now declassified documents from the Indian side, which did a, a, a sort of um, after-action review of, of the war, in which it states, in quote, the new developments of Chinese military, military forces on the border clearly show that the basic assumption behind the forward policy was no longer valid, and a serious reappraisal of the new situation should have been undertaken. This reappraisal, however, never took place. The Indian defense setup after independence lacked institutionalized support for decision-making at the national level. Okay. So putting this together, we now have two formal hypotheses on the risk of miscalculation. The first about the relative frequency between integrated and siloed, and the second of the <laughs> relative frequency between integrated and fragmented. It's worth pausing here to think about two important and interrelated considerations. So first, you might rightly be thinking, well, aren't some miscalculations inevitable, right? Aren't states sometimes going to get it wrong? And my answer to this is, Obviously, yes, there is going to be some uh, risk of baseline risk of failure inherent in the international system. We know that there's uncertainty. We know there's private information. But note here that this is where it's useful to think in relative terms, right? The argument is not that states with integrated institutions will never miscalculate. The argument is that relative to siloed and fragmented institutions, they should, on average, do better. In other words, my theory is probabilistic, not deterministic. The second, you might also be thinking, aren't there other determinants of miscalculation that could be existing alongside? And my answer, again, of course, is yes. Other things can push states to miscalculate. Yes, human beings do discount new information. There are psychological biases that uh, uh, impede our ability to learn. Um, but we would think about these things as existing in parallel to those. Okay. So, with the theory finally out of the way, um, I want to show you a bit about how this project tests these intuitions. And I use what's called, or what I'm calling, a nested mixed method approach that sort of looks at the theoretical argument at three different levels. So at the broadest level, I have this cross-national statistical analysis that I'm going to talk about in a minute that leverages original data across the world, mapping the typology onto states, uh, and then testing it statistically. Uh, but then I select four case countries, China, India, Pakistan, and the United States, and show how institutional variation and crisis, shaped crisis performance longitudinally in each country. I do this first through a kind of medium end analysis that shows general patterns. Um, but then I extract from the medium end analysis a series of nine specific cases across the full range of independent variables, uh, that, uh, full range of independent, full range of values, pardon me, that the independent variable can take on and conduct sort of detailed process tracing using archival and interview evidence from each. Critically, these cases show, and I'm happy to talk more about them, that integrated institutions in context as varied as Mao's China under personalist dictatorship, under Vajpayee's India, under parliamentary democracy, and Eisenhower's America uh, under presidential democracy do tend to lead to better information provision. Um, okay. So what I want to share with you in the remainder of the talk uh, is, is this thing that I'm still finalizing, the statistical analysis. So there are two reasons that I think, sorry, one second. There are two three reasons why I think this is a worthwhile endeavor, right? So some folks might be skeptical about statistical methods. Uh, I, I, I get it. Um, but first, remember I said that my theory is probabilistic, not deterministic. And a medium meta analysis doesn't really include enough case 
predictors to properly power uh, me conclusively saying that the patterns that I observe uh, actually hold more broadly, particularly when we start thinking about the potential confounders uh, in the immediate meta analysis. Um, second, even if this consideration isn't important to you, you might also be wondering, well, how much do national security institutions matter relative to all the other things that we know are important? How much does it matter relative to the balance of power, how, uh, regime type? Um, the process tracing evidence offers some preliminary answers, but not definitive ones. Um, so if we wanted to test this argument statistically, how would we do so? Now, an experimental approach would obviously be, you know, just not right, right? <laughs> Given the importance of bureaucratic information and expertise to the argument, it would be sort of not right to think that uh, undergrads sitting in a constructed, integrated institution uh, treatment condition would be able to replicate the conditions of the you know, Chinese Central Military Commission or the US National Security Council. So instead, what I do is I try to map my theoretical framework onto the real world through an extensive data collection process uh, in which a supervised team of research assistants reviewed hundreds of different uh, yearbooks, legal databases, and gazettes, as well as secondary sources in around 20 different languages. Uh, so these research assistants essentially had two tasks. The first was to identify two types of organizations, decision-making uh, organizations or bodies responsible for channeling information vertically from the bureaucracy to the leader, and coordination bodies that were responsible for channeling information horizontally. Um, for each research assistance coded a set of uh, questions pertaining to representation, utilization, staffing, and management of the body. And afterwards, the measures um, uh, are validated. So pardon me, after the measures are validated by a second coder, I then created these index scores, which essentially sums the values of the uh, uh, questions that they had coded, um, such that we can bin the, uh, the states uh, into one of the four categories that my typology specifies. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. One more? Right, the, the search capacity decision making body versus coordination body, aren't these usually the same? No, in fact, based upon the coding rule, they cannot be. So, what might be helpful in the US context, you know, we have. Yeah, yeah so think about the decision making level being. Um, you know, depending on the administration, either the NSC itself or the principals committee, um, and then think about the deputies committee, or it's like the IPC, I think, below that. Um, so the state had to have something uh, below a decision-making body. Um, so the National Security Council staff doesn't qualify here. The staff would, so the staff, in the case of the US system, uh, there are staffs both staffing the uh, principals level and the deputies level, and so you would get a one for both. Um, it's a great question, and I'm happy to talk more about because it, it doesn't look the same everywhere, <laughs> as you might expect. Um, okay, I'm going to skip through some of these empirical examples, but the, some of the source material that's used here. Okay, so what does this look like in the real world? Like, how do we get from uh, you know this document here uh, in Kazakhstan in 1991 to something resembling uh, uh, real data? So here you have um, the uh, sort of outcome of everything, um, the index scores and binned into the typology. Uh, a few things are worth noting about measurement validity. <clears throat> so um, a couple of examples give us some comfort that we're actually measuring the real thing. So for example, you should probably all be familiar with the work of Caitlin Talmadge. Um, and one of the things you'll notice up here is one of the things she finds in her book uh, that the, the data is picking up on. Namely, that Saddam Hussein changed the way in which he interfaced with his defense advisors about halfway through the Iran-Iraq war. So uh, similarly, we see in these data a shift from, in this case, fragmented to siloed institutions around the same time. 
Uh, those of you who might be more familiar with the American case might know the story of John F. Kennedy coming in, not liking the way in which Eisenhower had set up the NSC, making a series of modifications when he comes in in 1961. That's picked up on the data. By 1962, after the fiasco of the Bay of Pigs, uh, the United States shifts back to integrated. Okay. Uh, one final point I want to emphasize uh, descriptively before I move on. So thus far, um, maybe not, <laughs> uh, uh, but you might have been wondering, uh, is this all just proxying for something about regime type? I mean, the examples I just gave you should probably have dissuaded you, but what, is, what do things look like in aggregate? Um, so here you have the breakdown, both between democracy and autocracy, as well as some prominent ways in which comparativists break these things apart. And what we see here is some nice variation across each type not just within uh, autocracy and democracy, but within the subcategories as well. Um, and obviously, we can include these types of things as controls in the regression. OK, so um, how am I doing? OK. Uh, now on to the statistical analysis itself. Um, as you might be thinking, one of the challenges to testing this theory is that it's very difficult to ob directly observe, at least, miscalculation, i.e., leaders' beliefs at scale, right? Uh, this, in the, in the book chapters, I spend pages upon pages going through archival documents, trying to figure out, well, what did the leader believe? How accurate was that? I can't do that across all crises, uh, and certainly not all non-crisis periods, right, which are equally important in this case. Can't do that. So what could we do? The theoretical approach that I, or probably the empirical approach that I adopt, is to build a measure of miscalculation based upon crisis outcome that relies on some of the assumptions that I started with in building my theory. So namely, I operationalize miscalculation by setting the outcome variable to all instances in which a state initiated an international crisis, but ultimately have failed to achieve the own objectives that they, stay, uh, that they set. So this is not objectives that I'm opposing upon them. It's what does the history books say they wanted to get out of it, and what did they ultimately get? Um, from a theoretical perspective, this builds upon the assumption that leaders would prefer not to start crises that do not advance their objectives, which seems like a relatively reasonable assumption. Um, so when <coughs> we see that crises are starting crisis uh, and failing to achieve objectives, um, it's plausible that something went wrong. Uh, and it's empirically the case that this intuitively captures the three major cases that I've talked about thus far in the talk, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the EP3 incident, and the Sino-Indian War. Now, there's certainly three important limitations to the approach that I want to talk about before I actually present the results. So first, there are certainly going to be some instances in which states did the best they could with the information that they had and still got things wrong. Uh, in other words, there's always going to be some baseline risk in these models that states are going to fail, particularly given that we can't directly observe the leader's behavior. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> we can observe the leader's behavior. We can't observe their beliefs. Um, but while it's important to keep this in the back of our heads, however, um, it might be less of a problem given that we've set up these hypotheses in a relative fashion. That is, we're testing, uh, taking into account this baseline probability of failure, is there a statistically significant relationship between institution, integrated institutions' rate of failure on the one hand and the rate of failure on siloed and fragmented institutions on the other? Okay, a second consideration is that some leaders might be more risk acceptant than others. So if we think about the risk reward trade-off in the bargaining model of war, for instance, uh, one might be tempted to say, well, maybe it's just that leaders or the state are more willing to gamble uh, and thus more likely to fail than others. Um, 
This is a really important consideration, but one in which we can at least partially think through systematically and control for by thinking about the other things that might affect a state's or leader's risk profile, namely their background and experiences, the state's characteristics institutionally outside of the national security institutions, and the balance of power. Okay, a third limitation is that some folks, myself included, going into this project, are skeptical of outcome measures in these big data sets. And I, I totally get it. Um, one of the major limitations uh, behind this is the fact historians are learning new things all the time. And so, for example, what we know about play coup is much different after uh, Fred Logoval writes his book than when the ICB coders were initially, originally doing their uh, coding uh, several decades ago. The same might be said of, say, like the Johnson Reef uh, incident in 1988 uh, changed, our understanding of it changed after Taylor's book. So as a check on this, I led a team of RAs that reviewed all of the ICB's codings for crises after 1946. Um, and I was actually a little bit encouraged by what I found. So around 93% of crises had basic agreement on just uh, rudimentary success or failure, um, which suggests that suggesting that identifying success and failure in crisis is not an impossible task. We're certainly going to have disagreements. But also reassuring is the fact that whether I use my codings or the original codings, the results look pretty similar. OK. So now we have our basic setup, our explanatory. Yeah. Those coded as successes or failures? Partial successes are coded as successes to give states the benefit of the doubt. Uh, right? Um, uh, and this is a, in some ways, it could also be a, a, an instance. Well, let me talk about that more in the QA. Um, okay. So now we have our basic setup. Uh, our explanatory variable is an ordinal variable of institutional type with integrated set as the base category. The outcome variable is a binary measure of whether the state initiated a crisis that failed to achieve the goals. Um, I include a relatively standard set of controls, partially because uh, there are other things that could be leading the state <clears throat> to fail in crisis, one of which, importantly, could be the risk-reward trade-off. Um, and it's important to note Finally, that I use country, you know, what are called country fixed effects, which essentially means that the regression is holding constant a given state uh, um, uh, and all the other factors that might be baked into and not observed about the way in which, say, China or the Philippines or Vietnam is unique. Okay, so here you have a very simplified version of the results across five different model specifications. I'm going to sort of gloss through the different ways in which the models are set up, but I'm happy to talk about them in the Q and A. Um, Really, I just want to focus on the fact that the results across the board accord with theoretical predictions in several ways. So first, across the specifications, states with siloed and fragmented institutions are associated with more instances of states selecting into international crisis in which they fail to get what they want. Right? So based on the assumption that we made in the theory and the empirical strategy, this suggests, although it's, not determined, like it's, it's certainly not conclusive, that the quality of judgment that leaders exhibited uh, under these conditions is systematically lower than that of integrated institutions. Moreover, this finding is in tension with the existing characterizations of bureaucratic politics in several respects. If that agnostic model of bureaucracy is right, think back to uh, um, the Larson comment about how bureaucratic structures are orthogonal to performance, um, uh, we would expect to find a set of no results here, right? And that's not the case. Uh, if Graham Allison's traditional view of bureaucratic politics is right, then we might ex instead expect to see certain advantages flowing out of fragmented institutions that keep these pesky bureaucrats at bay. Again, this is simply not the case. A second point to emphasize here is how much bureaucracy is doing the work relative to just the fact that there might be more people in the decision-making room, right? So the, for those of you who are familiar with Alexander George's multiple advocacy model, 
maybe what's going on here is just you get more voices in the room, and it doesn't really matter if they're bureaucrat or political crony, you just want to have more folks. So if you notice, the only difference between model five and model four is directly testing this proposition. So one of the things I coded was not just who is on the body, but how big the body is. Um, I include a quadratic term for another reason, which I can talk about in the Q&A if you're interested. The result does accord with George's prediction, right? So larger groups tend to miscalculate less in crisis. But what's critical here is it doesn't wash out uh, the coefficients or the statistical significance of the thing that we care most about. Um, we can probe these results another way as well. So one of the things you might have noted um, is that the results that I've just showed you bundled two things together in the sort of zero category, right? That is not initiated in a crisis and initiated in a crisis that succeeds. Both of those are a zero, whereas initiating a crisis that fails to succeed is a one, right? That's by definition. Um, and we might rightfully be concerned that this would undermine our estimates in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, but to check to see if this is the case, what we can do is replicate the model, uh, subsetting just to the sample of uh, instances in which states have sel already selected into an international crisis. It's around 875 in total. Uh, in the left-hand panel, what we see is, again, across both a parsimonious and a fully uh, specified model, um, there is a statistically meaningful difference between siloed institutions fragmented and, and fragmented institutions on the one hand relative to the base category of integrated institutions on the other. Uh, finally, a last way of thinking about this and sort of probing this would be to look at, well, my theory is mostly about states who are initiating crises themselves. Would the same apply to another state triggering a crisis against them? And the intuition might be sort of, well, maybe the results or the effects would be a little bit uh, less. You could think about it as a type of placebo test, but it's, it's, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. In any case, the right-hand panel here tests this intuition. Um, showing only adversary-initiated crises. And in accordance with what I just said, we see both of the coefficients across the models go down in magnitude, and most of them lose their statistical significance. Okay. So I perform a series of robustness checks, which I'm again going to gloss over, but I'm happy to come back uh, to talk about them, including the potential selection effects um, that, that the model has baked into it. Um, in conclusion, though, I hope that the theory and empirical evidence today presented a pathway forward by which the field might begin to rethink the question about you know, the conventional wisdom on bureaucracy and how it shapes the quality of state judgment. This is an important question to give right because, as we've noted with the rise of populism, one of the tenets of populism is to try to push bureaucratic elites out of decision-making rooms, right? So we see that both in the United States and in other countries as well, uh, but we don't necessarily have good systematic evidence to think through what the effect of that would be. Um, my hope is that this project shows not only that this is not the first time that such things have happened across the world, but also that the consequences of those institutional shifts have systematically deleterious effects on international outcomes. More theoretically, I hope that this research agenda uh, sort of helps us recognize that bureaucracy differs in systematic ways across the globe, uh, that institutional structure offers some potentially uh, uh, you know, remedies by which uh, bureaucratic pathology can be curbed, and that if there is some sort of like fundamental essence to national security decision making, it is that the quality of judgment is shaped in large part by the institutional designs that regulate how decisions are made. So thanks so much for your time and attention. I look forward to the Q&A and feedback. Thanks, Tyler. So the floor is open. Please raise your hands high. So I've got um, Suzanne. You get the first question, but everyone else uh, keep your hands high. So. Well, I have a trillion questions. 
difference between fragmented and siloed institutions that sort of they have the same hypothetical prediction. They have the same like phenotype. They both have like less complete and lower quality information. The difference between them is just how they got there. But sort of in the story that you're telling about the cases, I'm curious to sort of really see if how they got there is actually what's having your causal impact rather than like the way that those organizations look. Because then then they would look at different cases or they're just like two versions of the same thing. I'm also curious sort of to what extent putting basically like blatant lies by bureaucrats and sort of like miscalculation, or not miscalculation because you're using that word differently, but accidents, sort of like intelligence accidents in the same category, to what extent does that limit your analysis? Because you're taking some agency away from bureaucrats and their ability to sort of do certain things that they might want to do that aren't mistakes from their perspective but are like decisions that they're making about how they want to talk to the leader. Okay. Yeah, no, these are both great questions. Um, so for fragmented and siloed, I truncate what I present here. Um, there's an additional argument in both the article version and in the book that it might be the case that siloed institutions are bad, they're worse than integrated ones, but they're not as bad as fragmented. Um, why might that be the case? Well, it could be the case. Remember I said that one of the reasons that bureaucrats might provide more and better information is that they're motivated to contribute to policy. That should happen under siloed institutions, right? They do get some access to the leader, which means that what they provide could shape policy, which could provide a modicum of, of uh, uh, motivation. That's not present, and there is no information at all in fragmented, so that might be a little bit worse. Um, it's, a, it's a tentative hypothesis, which is the reason I leave it out of the talk. It does turn out to be the case that there's um, a weak but present statistical relationship that essentially if you reset the base category to siloed, uh, fragmented does, does do a little bit worse. And you might have noticed the coefficients for fragmented were all larger uh, than siloed. Um, it becomes a lot stronger if you do it in a monadic way, but that's not yeah, important here. Okay, so uh, I love the blatant lies versus intelligence accident question. I think there's a couple different dimensions to what you're asking about. So one way that you phrased the question was that I'm sort of removing agency away from bureaucrats. I guess that's perhaps one way of thinking about it. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are lots of different ways in which a bureaucrat might provide information that turns out to be inaccurate, um, but that certain systems tend to encourage bureaucrats to do things consciously or unconsciously that deviate away from that more frequently than others. Um, so I think it's right that it lumps it together, um, but I'm not sure that that would necessarily undermine the argument. Oh, and sorry, you asked also about whether or not in the cases I can show that the pathways by which states uh, were led to miscalculation in a fragmented system differed from siloed. And yes, I spent a lot of time trying to carve out the specific uh, things that we would expect to observe along each pathway. And it does look quite different. Um, essentially what happens in things like the Cargill War in 1999, which has a siloed system, or the EP3 crisis in 2001, the issue is that it's not so much, um, it's not so much that the leader doesn't have information from the bureaucracy, uh, or even just one bureaucracy. It's that who gets there first has an exorbitant impact upon the leader's belief. And that siloing creates a kind of lag by which other bureaucrats don't know that the leader needs their information. So uh, perhaps a better illustration of the way that this works is in the Cargill War, right? So in the Cargill War, 
early on, the military is having uh, these meetings with Sharif in which they're briefing him about what uh, they're planning to do across the border. Uh, the diplomats are either not present in this meeting or they don't understand what's happening. And as such, they don't make a strong argument uh, against what the military is providing. Right? So that looks quite different from, a, say, like the Cultural Revolution and Mao, in which uh, like bureaucrats are either like, don't have access to the leader um, uh, or are afraid to speak to the power and as such self-censor. Um, so that's a much different pathway. Um, Rich Nielsen. Yeah, I apologize. I just didn't ask the clarifying question that you were going No, please. Can you go back to the regression table? Sure. Um, maybe I can. Oh, it's all the way at the beginning. Yeah, no um, What's the, I guess, what's the base rate? The base rate of failure? Yeah, so because you're um, using that yeah. as the held out category, right? But it's. Um, so, so like, oh. Sorry. Yeah. The base rate of failure for integrated? Like how often do you integrate yeah, institutions so I'm, fail? Figure, I'm just trying to figure out how to interpret the coefficients because it's a 1.43. Yeah. So what think is about that on this. Top of? Yeah. So think about this as like relative to a world in which. So another way, actually, can I do I have control? So going back. Oh shoot! The axis didn't show up. Okay, good. That's actually yeah. what I want. Yeah. So this. Uh, so to be specific, this is a pretty probability model in which I've plugged in the values of the Cuban Missile Crisis for the Soviet Union. Right? Okay, that's not quite what you want. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we can chat more about what, what, what you'd like to see. I, I'd be very curious. Um, I mean that genuinely. Um, but what we see here is in the counterfactual world in which the Soviet Union, who had fragmented institutions at the time, uh, in the counterfactual world in which they possessed integrated institutions, it would have lowered the predictive uh, probability from, I think, around 11% to 3%. Okay. Yeah. All right. Which is meaningful, uh, given, given like the baseline rates of... That you're asking about. Okay. Yeah. Let me see if I still have my question then in my head. So what, okay. what, are, what are the coefficients? The These are regression probabilities. So not in this in the, in the regression analysis. In the regression. What? So, yeah. So this is the relationship. The, the relationship of having a siloed institution relative to having a integrated institution that you are going to initiate an international crisis that fails to achieve your outcome, your, your desired objective. This is logarithmic. This is uh, this is a logarithmic. Sorry, you're yes. showing us the row. Yes, coefficients. it is. Yes. So, so I, I yeah I can. Sorry, um, I can send you the transform. But yeah. So then I'm sorry to keep falling off. It's just no trying to understand the result. So, so then in that Cuban Missile Crisis setting, yep. The so basically most initiators win their crisis. No. No. Uh, in fact, the majority lose. Okay. How does that square with you show that there was a, if they had integrated institutions, it would have been a 5% risk of failure, and with the other institutions, it was well, like so, a Sorry, the, the most, when I said most, that's across institutional types. That's just like the, the base, rate of, base rate of failure across the world. Like, before my theory, just like take the ICD, download it, do a cross-tab, yeah. More often than not, if you initiate a crisis, you don't get what you want. Is okay. that what you were asking? Yeah. I, I don't have the cross tab off the top of my head of what integrated institution. Like the, yeah, if you do the cross tab for integrated institution, I don't have that. I'm sorry. All right. I'll pass for now. I think okay. it's going to take more for me to understand the result. Don't misinterpret me. I love the theory. Okay. I just, uh, yeah. Okay. Like, I just, uh, I think I'm struggling to understand the regression result precisely and stuff. So. 
Okay. Oh, they do it the Oscar or something. Yeah. Renata. Thank you. So, so I have um, I have a question about uh, well, two part question about the how institutional design associates with institutional relationships. Um, and and so, so I think one of those, uh, so I liked how you started in the existing literature, sort of common assumptions about bureaucracies. And I think another assumption um, that's out there sort of both in sort of lay accounts um, in the literature is that bureaucracies are kind of, of sticky, right? That they, yes. they sort of have these yeah. set roles and then they just yeah. sort of keep operating. Um, but then when we got to your, your coding of these national security institutions, it actually seems like the design is, is quite fluid and, and can change quite rapidly. Um, and so I'm trying to square that with my sort of intuitions of bureaucracies. Um, and so my two-part question, you know, one is, is maybe in the qualitative work that you've done, how quickly do you see bureaucracies changing in response to these institutional design changes, right? A new committee is, is established to improve coordination. Does coordination improve? How rapidly? And then the second part of that question for, for thinking through these statistical results that you're sharing is, um, you know, I, I assume you're looking at you're somehow lagging the institutional design change relative to crisis initiation, mm -hmm. because how do we know that crisis initiation isn't driving changes in institutional design? Um, yeah. Right, but assuming you have looked at that, have you looked at sort of, you know, how long does it actually take for institutional design to change to, to be driving these different uh, different rates of, of failure and crises? Yeah, so it's a great question on, like, at least two different um, ways. So the theory is set up actually in a two-part two um, model, uh, and I've just sort of showed you the consequences. Uh, the full theory has a theory of origins um, in which the foil is Zegart, uh, right? Uh, the foil is institutions are very sticky, they do not change. Um, and I try to show that under rapid political, domestic political changes, leaders have incentives to in change these institutions quite quickly. And it has pretty pronounced impact on the information flow almost immediately. So like ways in which I test this, um, uh, so you might say like, well, how do you know that? So like in the cases, one of the things I do, I don't just take uh, the cross-national um, codings uh, um, at face value, I look to see patterns of information flow within the state changing over time. So for example, I can look at Mao's meetings uh, and information flow within those meetings with his advisors changing from 1949 to 1976. And there's a marked shift, in the shift around the time that the institutional design changes in the early 1960s. Similarly, when we look, so one of the other things I did in the US chapter, so I only looked for the US chapter between the Eisenhower administration and the Johnson administration in detail. But one of the things I did was I coded up the Presidential Daily Diary, which for those of you who might be familiar, this is an uh, archival resource which essentially says, like, who did the president meet with from 947 to 945? Oh, pardon, you can't do that. Uh, that would be impressive if you could. From 947 to 951. Um, and I code up and see, like, who gets FaceTime with uh, the boss, so to speak. And that changes in accordance, at least in the US system, the cases I look at, that changes in accordance with the shift in institutional design. Similar thing happens with India. Uh, Nero's papers have been published, and so I document the flow of information from him and his defense advisors versus him and his, his uh, diplomatic advisors. Uh, defense and diplomatic, I can't remember if I said both. Um, so that's how I'm trying to, like, uh, to validate the fact that this does, in fact, move. The question, it, this is a really interesting question, and one I don't have a good answer to other than to say like I should probably think about it. 
the idea that perhaps it takes longer for an institution, a change in the formal institutional design that the cross-national analysis is picking up on, to have an effect. I mean, because I, I don't have the thing that you're looking for, but, and we do observe a relationship, potentially the relationship is stronger, I guess. It would seem like it would bias the estimates downward um, by not including the thing that you're thinking about. But I guess I would want to think more about that. Maybe that's not right. Um, I, I love that question, though. And I'll, I'll follow up with you if I can. So I may have three, two fingers. Oh, boy. Um, Six fingers, fingers in total. Well, it's related to the question, but it's not, it's not Right. Is it a genuine two finger? <laughs> I, I also isn't really interested in the stickiness question. Okay. Yeah. Um, fire away. Well, so I was curious are there parts, because it seems like there are parts of institutions that leaders can change much more quickly, more easily than yes. others. Yes. Because it does really, yeah. like, in my bones, yeah. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, you can't do It's like almost by definition, right? Um, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it, this is like, uh, uh, well, things, sometimes things change. Um, yeah, uh, it is a great question. I should have been clear about this in the talk. Um, I feel more confident that leaders have discretion to change these things at rapid pace because I'm looking at very, very senior levels, right? If you think about it, like let's say, I mean, obviously this isn't what I'm looking at, but like let's take an extreme version of this, right? And like literally th set the institution, and, this, and at this point it isn't an institution anymore, but think about the relationship of whether or not a leader is willing to listen. Like the there's nothing saying the leader has to listen, right? Uh, unless the bureaucracy has coercive power, which is not really what I'm looking at. Um, so uh, at those higher levels, the leader does have a lot of different mechanisms by which they can, they can shift things quickly. They can, they can set up uh, ancillary uh, uh, bodies. They can shift things into informal settings and just not utilize the formal thing. They can appoint uh, themselves or uh, individuals that don't have expertise into key positions that occupy the formal body. Lots of different strategies that leaders can use to get things moving more quickly than you might anticipate. That being said, I totally buy that further down the food chain, which is, I think, actually, in a way, both Amy Ziegart and I are right. Uh, maybe, uh, well, I, I won't say, it. she could still be right in the sense that further down the bureaucratic food chain, there is a lot of resistance and, and inertia, um, which we would expect. Great, so it's not Yeah, yeah. I mean, listening to you kind of put the meat on the bone, I, I, I don't know how, how you tell the difference between institutional design and simply leadership. So when I think of institutional design, yep. I see I think structures that are extant. Yep. And then the question is, do leaders use the structures that are extant, or yep. do they short circuit them? Are the structures that are extant simply formalities? Right. So if you're measuring the structure by the process, you're not measuring the structure. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So I think that's a completely valid question. To be clear, in the regression results, it's a pretty formal approach. There are instances in which there's a clear instance or there's clear evidence that the body is no longer utilized. It's a dormant, exists on paper only. But if anything, like I'm, I am uh, uh, biased towards the formal and the regression results. In the case studies, um, I am measuring institutional design as I think you would describe it, the extant organizational structure uh, what bodies are established, how are they set up, what are the rules that are written down on paper uh, first, before I observe the process. So it, it 
it's it's with a great deal of attention to ensure it's not tautological or this you know the right hand side of the equation is not the same as the left hand side. Okay, so so the urgency increase. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you my two two finger version yeah. and follow up on this. This is a really important point. I think for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to start with the most parochial approach, okay. which is which is my interest in Japan. I'm a Japan yeah. specialist, and, and, and I care about this stuff. And Japan is famously siloed. I mean, there's there's probably no country I've, I've encountered which um, the the Japanese have a term for it: vertical administration, siloed. It's not just about intelligence siloed, so forth. Yeah. It's just it's famously siloed. And when I looked at your list, mm. of, of the only Japanese case that popped up was Japan is integrated. Mm. And why was that? Well, the, Japan was integrated. You listed Koizumi and Abe. And, you know, and that gets directly to, to the conversation we're having, which is um, that, that, that you said leaders have incentives to shift the institutions during political crises. And they also have, in, they have incentives to, 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 to do it during normal normal times and and we don't know yet which um, which leaders are more or less likely to take on institutional reform now here here was a, here was a case of Abe who comes into government in, in late 2012 early 2013 and within a year had completely transformed the National Security Council and made it a functioning institution which never existed in post-war or post-war Japan so I guess my question is uh, are you interested in, and, and, and where would you direct us toward better understanding which leaders will be able to do that and when, during crises, during yeah. normal times, so forth, and, and which ones um, just sort of uh, succumb to right. the institutional constraints, stasis, and so forth that, that we're familiar with? Um, so I want to, uh, you know, sort of caveat everything I'm about to say that like, I'm I'm not an expert on the no, Japanese case. Be about yeah. Um, so start with the parochial, but it's a larger question. Yeah. No. I, and I think this is. I think Adam Liff has a interesting paper about the reform that hap that you're describing. Yeah. Adam, Adam Liff. Yeah. Um, which I think is maybe why it's coded the way it is. I, I mean, it was, it was some years ago. Um, but um, yes. So. Um, Okay, so on the theory of origins, it's essentially an argument that says that leaders have two considerations when they're thinking about what their preferences are for which type they want to adopt, right? I'll get to this sort of stickiness a bit later. So the first is they look around and they say, do bureaucracies pose um, a salient political threat to my survival, right? Are the interests or capabilities of the bureaucracy such that if they were to move against me, if they were to challenge me, either through like a public debate or in a lot of autocracies uh, through a coup, I think they would succeed, right? If the answer to that is no, then sort of regardless of the situation, I argue you can, the preference should be integrated, right? Because they don't really threaten you and you can get advice from them. So your, your prospects should be better in national security. Things get trickier if the answer is yes, because they still have expertise, so you want that, but they also threaten you, so how do you resolve that? And so the second factor I say that leaders look at is, um, is whether or not their agenda is focused primarily on international issues or domestic ones. So in the case, like what's for Lyndon Johnson, right? what's driving a shift towards a much more pathological institution inside the NSC 
um, is uh, a fear that bureaucrats are going to leak information, which is why he established this, this thing called the Tuesday Luncheon. Right? Um, at the same time in which he's deathly afraid that those bureaucratic leaks are going to threaten his ability to push through the Great Society and Civil Rights legislation. Right? There's even some quotes from like Doris Kearns Goodwin biography, which is based largely on a lot of interview access that she had with Johnson, in which um, uh, the case is made that there's this lull after the Kennedy administration in international threats in which Johnson comes in re ready, raring to go, uh, thinking about the domestic. Uh, so it's the combination of those two things that uh, at least establish leaders' uh, preferences. Now, you could say, those are the leaders' preferences. Uh, do they actually get what they want? There could be a lot of other things that constrain their ability to do so. Right? Maybe there's like a tremendous political opposition. Maybe there's institutionalization, for example. So Trump tried to change the uh, National Security Council when he came in the composition. I think he tried to put in Bannon. Uh, I, I forget exactly. Um, but there was public outcry about that, right? Because the composition of the NSC is now relatively well known by the US public, and, and there was pressure put on him to, to say, don't do that. So um, I, the assumption in the theory is essentially that leaders tend to get what they want, um, uh, at least in the cases that I'm looking at. Um, I think a great area for, for, for the research is you know, setting these preferences uh, that I, I come up with aside. Are there other things that sort of ratchet up or dial down the ability of a leader to, to get the thing that they want? And maybe that would have some insight into why Abe was able to do what he was able to do. Um, uh, I think it's a great area for, well, for future scholarship. Leaders will get something, they will get what they want more often during crises than during normal, normal politics. I, my, my more likely to pursue it so the ability of the leader is constant in my theory uh, I sort of yeah uh, which is probably too that's probably too uh, stylized it can probably be complicated by other factors which ratchet up things one way or the other thanks yeah uh, Nick is a, a two finger on yeah, stickiness it, uh, it builds directly from uh, Great. Nick's point yeah which is uh, hi Tyler I, I just hi. had a quick question which is I, just, I, I wanted to hear more about this variation within countries yeah one question that I had is we know by definition that bureaucracies are both purposive and meritocratic and I'm wondering what, what extent, was the first uh, they're purposive so they're designed for specific purposes right or to accomplish okay. a given task at least in varying context um, and they're meritocratic which makes me think that if there is a miscalc I wonder if there's an association between hmm. miscalculation and a failure to achieve those goals, and the composition of the bureaucracy, and whether the causal error may go the other way, right? Yeah. You have institutions reforming as a consequence of miscalculation, and I just was wondering yeah. what role that parallel narrative yes. has in your story. So un undoubtedly, there could be another story. I alluded to the Bay of Pigs. Um, one understanding of the reason why Kennedy sort of changes things once he gets into office is. Um, he gets more experience, is more comfortable with decision making, so on and so forth. Uh, another story is that the Bay of Pigs sort of shows him the problem with doing what he did, right? Um, and there are, uh, if you go to the Kennedy archives, there are memos in which Bundy says to Kennedy, "We came in with a certain set of expectations about what shifting away from Eisenhower's NSC system would do for us, and it's probably the case. I think this is literally a quote: We went too far. <laughs> um, they have to be very careful about this because they became very political with criticizing Eisenhower's uh, NSC. But um, uh, I think, like." in order to establish something below the NSC, akin to what Eisenhower had set up, which was called the OCB, um, instead, which stood for the Operations Coordination Board, I think. Uh, they called it like the, um, it, it, was, it, it was something, it was something very, very similar to that, um, uh, uh, to try to mask the fact that they weren't just replicating, um, but uh, were reverting back to, to what the optimal solution was for them. 
Um, so, so yeah, in terms of like, um, so I think this is part of it. In the models, I'm less worried about it because I'm sort of, I'm, well not sort of, I'm lagging uh, the amount of time in which you've been in crisis, right? So that should soak up a lot of the thing that you're thinking about empirically. Um, but yeah, it could be the case that there's a theory of institutional reform that essentially says, did you fail recently? And that motivates you to, to adopt a, um, uh, a different design. Um, great, so we have now entered speed dating phase of oh boy. Q&A. So I'm gonna ask two folks to ask, do you wanna get on the list too, Raymond? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if we, we'll see how speed dating works. So I'm gonna ask two folks to ask their questions, yeah. one after the other, then turn it back to you to respond to some of what you were asked. So first pair here will be a chap and then Nina. Great. So this, this was terrific. And really, really interesting. I love how you're trying to integrate these institutional variables with uh, international relations. Um, so three comments. You don't have to respond to them if you don't want to. Gotcha, <laughs> <laughs> Bill. So uh, first, I, I don't think this is about bureaucracy. It's about information flows and decision-making processes. Right? All these things would happen at your level of theory, regardless of whether there was a bureaucracy or not. I mean, the, the, the decision makers and the advisors, they could be clan leaders, they could be heads of subnational mm. groups, they could be no, whatever, nobles, whatever. Like, there may or may not be a bureaucracy. So I would, I'd be inclined to strike bureaucracy from the, from the title, or at least clarify what you mean. Um, second, on the sampling. So I mean, you, you described the choice of the medium in cases as potentially problematic because it was underpowered and couldn't account for confounding factors. But that's, that's not the real problem, right? The bigger problem is how did you choose those specific cases for further analysis oh, out sure. of your universe of 153 yeah. or whatever sure. it yeah. is? So I think yeah. that, that you need to like explain. And then you ask for uh, advice on the statistical analysis. So I think first, just, you know, present the base rates first or you will have a very disgruntled set of riches out there. I think like showing us raw local coefficients is kind of, it's very 1990s. You know, I, I, would, I would avoid that. And then with the body size here, the Model 5, I mean, I don't think you should show us Model 5 unless you have Model 5A, which lacks the quadratic term. Okay. Right. Because otherwise people will instantly think you might be trying to do something funky. Okay. That's right. Um, <laughs> do you have three questions and three observations? <laughs> um, so it's about another one of your sort of result slides, um, the one where you have it broken up by like adversary initiated crises yep. versus um, uh, whether the state initiated it themselves. Um, so I might be interpreting this wrong, but I understood it to say that we see the like problematic bureaucracies um, failing at much higher rates when the state initiates the crisis themselves, whereas the comparison between um, siloed and um, what are the three categories, that they're much closer in failure rates um, when it's an adversary initiated crisis. And so when we think about the two avenues for bureaucratic pathways in this calculation, that the information itself is bad or the fails to reach the leader. Why is that not leading to failure in adversary-initiated crises? Why is it just an issue with no choice to initiate a crisis? OK, so how are you? Um, yeah, no, I, so uh, thanks so much for um, all, both of these sets of questions um, on the three comments. Um, so 
Yeah, I, uh, it, it hurts my heart a little bit to hear that uh, you don't think it's about bureaucracy. I think in the context of decision-making that I'm interested in, which is like international security crises, the information and expertise that leaders are getting that I think is important is coming from bureaucracies. So I guess one way to interpret your comment would be to say that this actually has broader applicability to another set of circumstances beyond the, the thing that I'm interested in. But no, okay, well, uh, yeah. Um, in any case, I, I mean, I agree that it is about information. I think that information clusters in bureaucracies. Um, uh, on the sample, so essentially those four cases, uh, the reason I chose them, and it's actually, two chapters on China, so it's China under Mao, so trying to get personalist dictatorship, China after Mao, trying to get collectivist dictatorship, and then Pakistan military regime, uh, India parliamentary democracy, United States presidential democracy. That was the, the, the motivation for selecting five regional or major powers uh, that span the other regime types, or all the major regime types. Because one of the standard arguments here might just be, well, as I said before, this is really about democracy versus autocracy or some variant of, of those two things. Um, uh, on Model 5 versus the uh, Model 5A, which I didn't show you, uh, it's not different, I uh, promise, um, but uh, point taken on the presentation. Um, on the two pathways, as Nina right, asked, um, so I'm not, could you clarify just exactly I'm not sure I followed, so right. I, I'm so sure. sorry. Would you mind like flipping to the side? To sure. Just, so you're, I guess you're asking why is it the case that in this, on the yes. right-hand panel, we don't observe the same thing? Yeah, what is happening with information division that yeah. all of these bureaucratic takes are equally so, likely to succeed? I mean, I think about a state that isn't like rearing to go to war or rearing to start a crisis, but another side sort of like gives it no choice but to do so. Um, we might expect that under those circumstances, even folks with very good information provision, high quality and fully complete, um, would still do pretty badly because it's the adversary making the choice, not you. Um, you can make, like, there's a good critique here, which is to say, no, this is a strategic interaction, right? And so just make it more of a concession, right? If it's truly a bargaining problem, uh, just give it up, right? Um, but there's lots of psychological reasons that suggest that, you know, folks have a harder time giving up things um, as Taylor's work shows. Uh, so. Right, next pair, uh, Jackie and then Um okay. So I guess my first point was actually quite similar to Richard's with the slide with the kind of like your whole payoff to give a better sense of the substance of the fact. So how much less likely is a, or how much more likely is a siloed bureaucracy likely to fail than an integrated one? Like what, what is the percentage on average number that we're talking about here that would give you a really good sense of uh, the overall payoff? Uh, when it comes to miscalculation, you're focusing mostly, my understanding is that you're focusing on crisis initiation, but you can also fail because of the goals that you set. Yeah. So is that sort of integrated into your theory as well? And then finally, I'm not sure if you got to this, but crisis initiation, is it the same across bureaucratic categories? Are there certain bureaucratic types that are likely to initiate yeah. crises overall in the first place? So just a clarifying question on your question. So you mean if I, if I were to control for, if I I ran a separate model that didn't do my types, but instead did defense, diplomatic, and intelligence as the covariates. Oh, uh, is that so what you're asking? That, that could be another interesting question. But you mean like different types of bureaucracy, so or siloed bureaucracies or whatever, like to initiate. Like, what's what are the? Do you see variation across that, or is that the same? In the defense uh, initiate. Yeah, they're okay. more likely to initiate. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. So what are the like, 
This is the parochial side of the thing. Um, no, I, 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 I did a case on this, so I so, feel confident talking about it. Yeah, so Nehru, Nehru keeps writing, and he has written it multiple times that there cannot be a, a war with China because that war will become World War III. Yeah. And that's why he is confident in doing the sort of thing that he's doing. And then, uh, it's, I, I'm wondering how much of the role, I, I didn't see much role of institutional design when I studied 1962 war. Sure. And, and yes, when you look at post-war review reports, lot, because they, they are comprehensive by nature, they will also talk about institutional design, so you might find some support there. And they will not mention much flaws of Nehru, because Nehru was the towering leader of the time. So uh, I'm wondering if it is at all about institutional design. You also kept mentioning diplomatic ministry, I think external affairs ministry. Mm -hmm. And Nehru was also the external affairs minister at the same time. Yeah. So I don't know if there is any variation to be expected from a different input coming from that side because they will tell what the leader wants to hear. Yeah. Uh, last point on the same war. The, in Nehru's mind, he was not initiating the crisis but responding to it. The road was, the China had already initiated the crisis by forward deploying, by building a road in contested territory. So it was not really, in his mind, we can contest that, but in his mind, he was yeah. not initiating the crisis. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to take, we'll do two. Yeah. I'm going to do it in a reverse order. Um, okay. So whether or not uh, Nero initiated. Um, uh, unlike, I'm going to have a different answer when it regards to um, goals, because um, I'm going to take goals as given. but. Regarding whether or not the goals are revising the status quo, I do like try to set something objective because, as you say, like lots of folks think I'm not doing anything. Like the status quo is what I say it is. Uh, I'm just reverting back to where it should be. Um, the de the definition I use right is is the um, is the action that the state's taking that precipitates the crisis, um, making some meaningful policy change relative to what was before. So the forward policy meets that criteria, right? So there are border posts, there are lines drawn before uh, November 1961, and there are different lines drawn as a result of the outposts that are set up subsequent to November 1961. Yes, they're like, and we can talk about like whether or not November 1961 is the right point, but um, for purposes of the discussion, we can say that. Okay. Um, Yes, so this is so interesting. Remember one of the ways that I said uh, that leaders can undermine institutions without uh, necessarily having to uh, completely get rid of the DC, the Defense Committee, the Cabinet, is doing things like creating a members committee of the Defense Committee of the Cabinet, which he did in order to exclude the military and intelligence, right? And he assumes the role of the foreign, what is essentially the foreign minister, the Ministry, Minister of External Affairs from the get-go. Yes, this does lead to a, a, a fear of speaking truth to power, um, even within the diplomatic ministry. The diplomatic ministry, however, does have a little bit more sway relative to the defense one. Um, and it's indeed part of that that confirms Nehru's prior, which you talked about, and I'll talk about like where that comes from in a second, uh, that he was in a good bargaining position, right? So it makes sense if I only look at the diplomatic side of things, I only look at international law, I only look at the strength of my territorial claims, I look pretty good vis-a-vis -vis China, right? And so I'm going to push forward militarily based solely upon those considerations without consulting whether or not the defense ministry feels that they can actually hold those positions once I tell them to do so. Um, yes, you are right that Nehru's prior beliefs are sort of like kind of constant. Um, 
And that's kind of part of the story of fragmented institutions. Under fragmented institutions, we shouldn't expect a ton of leader belief revisions because bureaucrats, bureaucrats uh, don't have the ability to channel information up to the leader and don't have the ability to you know, offer quality information that would be able to persuade them. So I think you're at, we're very much simpatico on, on uh, understanding from that regard. With regard to the report itself, so first of all, that quote is from, I believe, the introduction. It's like in the preface. That's one of the things they're leading with. They're saying that this is one of the most important things that we take away from the war. Second of all, Nehru's died in 1964. The, off, the report was authored in 19, you probably know better than I, 19 1970-something, right? It's, 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 it's after Brooks Henderson, I believe, right? So yeah, that could be. That could be. And that's, that's fair. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean that they would naturally look to like this institutional scapegoat, per se. Like, there would be, like, I can see a motivation why they might not want to criticize Nehru, right? But it doesn't mean they would necessarily want to point to where they pointed. Um, and they did point to exactly where the theory would expect us to point. Okay, getting to Jackie in reverse order, how much? Uh, so super quickly, uh, no, it is not the case that uh, in a siloed or uh, fragmented institutions are more likely to initiate writ large. Uh, two, uh, crisis initiation. Yeah, so I think I, no, I didn't put this in the uh, slides. So if you control for different bureaucratic um, constituencies being members of these institutions, the results are not super strong and the, you know, the core correlations don't change. Uh, and then lastly, so you asked about the goals that you set. This was, this was one of the trickiest parts of thinking about how I was going to code things. And one of the ways in which I deviate, well, it's not that I deviate, I just, the ICB, where I started from uh, with this analysis on crisis outcomes, doesn't provide a lot of meat on the bones for what we code is what, right? It's, it's like a paragraph. So I have like two pages of what we think about. Um, the question you rightfully ask is, is there another type of miscalculation that precedes goal setting? So there's a trade-off here, right? So if there is, then I have to establish some sort of ex-ante objective condition about what is, an, is not a good or a um, likely goal to have. And that's an onerous thing to establish. Um, uh, you can do it, but it felt uh, a little tricky to do. More importantly, I think actually this design choice stacks the deck in the leader's favor, right? If we want to be sort of like come at this from the perspective of like being a leader, being a president, prime minister, like facing the tremendous uncertainty of the international environment, that's hard. It's hard to predict what's going to happen in a crisis. So maybe like we give them a little bit of slack and say, well, what did you want to achieve, right? So that in that regard, like we're not saying that because Mao was a revolutionary, uh, that was necessarily a miscalculation. We're saying, okay, conditional on you having revolutionary objectives, were you able to achieve them? Um, which in some ways is more sympathetic or takes a more sympathetic view uh, and stacks the deck against the finding.